that the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? I'm sure that, that many of you probably know the answer that the catechism gives to that question. It's well known. The catechism answers the question, what is the chief end of man? But with the answer that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that answer there is expressing the, the truth that, that God created us for the purpose of worshiping him. That's why we exist. Of course, we, we know sin has short-circuited that, that purpose in that, that people now seek to worship self instead of worshiping God. Yet sin has not obliterated our original purpose. It remains, we remain most fully human when we worship our Creator. In fact, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross so that the original purpose of mankind can find restoration. This morning... We come not only to worship our Creator, we, we come to worship our Redeemer. We, we recognize that that sin that short-circuited our original intention, that sin also separated us from God. We, we understand that, that we could do nothing to save ourselves. We recognize that we deserve eternal condemnation because of our sin. We, we acknowledge that, that Jesus did what, what we could not do, that Jesus paid the, the price of our sin, that he paid the eternal debt that sin placed upon us. He died in our place. And for that reason, we rejoice that, that God now rewards our acceptance of Jesus, his death, uh, as full payment for our sins, that, that when we place our faith in him, that we are forgiven of that debt that's placed upon us fully forgiven, reconciled to God himself. In other words, we gather this morning as reconciled sinners for the express purpose of worshiping God through Jesus Christ. We gather because our purpose is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Friends, we are reconciled sinners. We are here reconciled sinners to worship God. Our, our psalm this morning shows us some truths about what our worship should look like as we gather to do that which we're, we were created to do. As you can see on the screen, we're looking at Psalm 84 this morning. As we continue our series through the third book of the Psalter, we're at Psalm 84. Like several of the psalms that we've looked at, there, there's nothing in this psalm that ties it to any particular event in the history of Israel. It's just one of the many psalms that, that we have that, that are general in nature. What, what is clear is that this psalm gives expression to the worship of a reconciled sinner. Now, of course, in Israel's day, worship was centered at the tabernacle first and then later at the temple in Jerusalem. So the, the, the worship centered there as God chose Israel as the nation through which he was going to unfold his purposes for mankind. He created a, a central sanctuary that they would focus their worship at. He demonstrated but his choice of this nation and his plan of redemption for mankind by by manifesting his presence in a very special way at the sanctuary. We're in the church age now. We, we no longer have worship centered in a physical sanctuary. 
Still, we see this morning that, that the attitudes here of this Old Testament worshiper, as he thinks about worshiping at the central sanctuary, we'll see that his attitudes can teach us a lot about worship as New Testament believers. The, the fundamental idea that we see reflected in this psalm, an idea that there remains just as relevant now as it was in the psalmist's day, is that a reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. Let's read that again. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. You know, one of the things I missed when I, I took my trip to Chad was I missed the divisional championship game that the Lions played. Pastor Aaron told me a little bit about what it was like to be in that city uh, on Sunday when the Lions played that last game. During the game, Pastor Aaron said he had to run out for something. He had to go out to his store, and he said it was eerie. The, the roads were empty. He, he said he got to the store parking lot, and, and essentially he assumed the only cars in the parking lot were the workers because he saw no one else in the store. Apparently, the entire city was in front of TVs watching the game. Think about it. No one forced anyone in the city to watch that game. There were no concentration camps that, that made people sit and watch that game. Do you realize that, that people weren't even compensated? No one was paid to sit there and watch the game that day. Yet hundreds of thousands of people eagerly watched because their excitement that the Lions might make it all the way to the Super Bowl this year. Now, I would hope that we would all agree that being reconciled for all eternity to the God of the universe, to our sovereign, holy creator, being reconciled to him is far more significant than, than making it to one of the annual Super Bowl appearances. The question is, does our eagerness for worship reflect the difference of that significance? A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. If you have your Bibles opened or your Bible app pulled up to Psalm 84 by now, you, you likely see that there's two selahs that, that are on the right-hand side of the column that naturally breaks this psalm into three sections. It, it's been a while since I mentioned this word selah. We find it in, in many of the psalms. No one knows for sure what this word means, but most likely it's some sort of a musical notation. That's what most scholars believe, that, that it indicates a, a break between stanzas for a musical interlude or, or maybe a pause or crescendo, something of that nature. At any rate, it frequently does come at the natural breaks in the stanzas. And this morning, if we follow the stanza breaks represented by that sila, we can identify three characteristics that a reconciled sinner should have in the area of worship. A reconciled sinner is eager worshiper. From the first stanza, that means that a reconciled sinner spiritually hungers for worship. Spiritually hungers for worship. Let's read the first four verses. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Look at verse 1 there. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. I call this sermon a prayer for worship because the psalmist clearly here is addressing God, O Lord of hosts. It's equally clear that he's thinking about the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, I mentioned Old Testament worship is centered there at the sanctuary. The Old Testament worshiper, he naturally thought about Jerusalem when he thought about worship. He thought about the temple. That came to his mind as he thought about worship. And these verses here reflect a, a yearning to physically be at the temple. Physically be worshiping. The, the word that we have translated as lovely, how lovely are your dwelling places, that, that word is normally translated in the Old Testament as loved, not lovely. That the phrase could be translated how loved, or, or we could even say how beloved are your dwelling places. Surely a true worshiper loved the beauty of the Solomon's temple. Solomon created this glorious temple, this beautiful building. But more than that, a, a true worshiper loved the dwelling place where the sovereign Lord manifested his presence to his nation. He loved the place where he could offer a sacrifice. He loved that he could come there and have his sins atoned. He loved the temple because the temple connected him to his God, whom he loved. The, the challenge that the faithful worshiper faced is that he was not able to permanently dwell at the temple. He couldn't reside there all the time. He had to go home, most likely. Very limited amount of people lived in Jerusalem. Most of the nation lived outside the city of Jerusalem. Many only made their way to Jerusalem three times a year. God gave three annual festivals that everybody was to come to, but aside from that, they were not at the temple. Our psalmist found himself envying the, the small birds, like the sparrows. He said, these small birds, they at least can live up in the eaves of the buildings that make up the temple. They're near the altar. They can be there all the time. Living in physical proximity, even though they're insignificant creatures, they're in physical proximity to God's altars. He considered the, the singers and the musicians as the most blessed of all the Israelites because their lives were filled with worship. They were there all the time so they could be part of the worship of God. Every day they were part of the praise offered to God. People of God in God's temple offering praise. He yearned to be part of that. Now, this idea of yearning to be at the central sanctuary, that may make it difficult for us to bridge the gap from us here as New Testament believers to the Old Testament Israelite. Worship in our day is different. After all, we, we don't connect worship to a physical location. We understand, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, that each of us is the, the temple of the, the living God. So we tend to think of worship in the individualized way. We can worship God wherever we are. Well, in a sense, the same thing was true for an Old Testament believer. 
Just think of all the prayers we've, you know, here we are at 80, Psalm 84. Through the years we've looked at 83 psalms now. Many of those are prayers of David. Think of how many of those prayers of David he offered while he was running for his life, fleeing enemies. Clearly David didn't think he had to get to the central sanctuary in, in Israel, there in Jerusalem, that he had to come there so he could pray to God. He prayed from whatever cave he was hiding out. He knew that God could hear him. He knew that he could praise God for deliverance. He could do it individually. What, what made worship at the central sanctuary special in the Old Testament time, was that represented the center point of God's program. It wasn't the only place an Israelite could connect with God, but it was the center point of God's program for humanity at that time. This is where atonement was offered. Well, I want us to see what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Keep your, your finger in Psalm 84, but turn to Ephesians 2. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Not just hear it. I'm going to start reading in, in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 13. The, the idea that I want to see is at the end of the chapter, but in typical Paul fashion, you have to back up quite a ways so that you can see the beginning of his thought. Verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached Peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a, notice the word, holy temple, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you see the image that, that Paul's using here at, at the end of this passage? He, he's using the image of a holy temple that's being built as all believers are being added in, to jointly being the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Paul's talking about the church of, of Jesus Christ. But the image he's using is that of a temple. And the image only makes sense because in the Old Testament, God centered his program in a physical temple. Now Paul can make the, the point that just as the central point of worship for the Old Testament believer was that temple, now God is making a, a new temple. And that temple is the, the church of Jesus Christ. That now becomes the center point. That, that means that, that worship today is focused when the body of Christ gathers, when the church assembles. Sure, we can pray and worship God alone. God hears us when we're in our house and, and we pray. But we come to the center point of God's program when we gather as Christ's church. That's why 
we should have a spiritual hunger for worship. That's why we should desire corporate fellowship, gathered worship. We should feel no more satisfied worship God independently than our psalmist felt when he was away from the central sanctuary. We should recognize we're missing something when we're not together. Let me ask you, go back to that, that football game, that last Lions football game. Why did a massive crowd gather at Ford Field to watch that playoff game? The, play, the game was in San Francisco. It was a couple thousand miles away. Why did they gather in Ford Field to watch on the Jumbotron? Did they think the, the seats in, in Ford Field were more comfortable than their couches? Or, or that the, the junk food at Ford was better than what they could get at their own house? Why did they gather together rather than watching the game alone? We are missing something when we're not gathered for worship. We are experiencing something special where we're living in the center of God's program in this dispensation when we come together and worship with each other. We, we gather to, to celebrate our reconciliation to God through Christ. We gather surrounded and united with other reconciled sinners. We rejoice jointly because we share reconciliation. Our hearts should yearn for such worship. We should spiritually hunger for worship. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. The first stanza of our psalm here teaches us that that reconciled sinner spiritually hungers for worship. In the second stanza, we we see another characteristic. A reconciled sinner sacrificially commits to worship. Sacrificially commits. Back to our psalm now, verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give give ear, O God of Jacob. For any Israelite that, that lived outside of Jerusalem, a trip was required to gather for worship at the central sanctuary. It took a journey. A devout worshiper, as I said, would make this journey at least three times a year. Three times minimum for those annual festivals that, that God gave the nation. They were festivals to deliberate or, or to celebrate the atonement. They, they celebrated the deliverance that God gave them as a nation. Well, these pictures that we just read, they, they picture the thoughts that... that flowed through the psalmist's mind as he considered making one of these journeys. His trip was going to take him through a wilderness. It it was not necessarily an easy path. Yet the tone here in the verses is one of great joy. Notice verse 7 shifts from me to they. He, He speaks in the plural. The psalmist knows he is not going to make this journey alone. There's going to be other worshipers traveling with him. They're coming for a common purpose to to Jerusalem. Furthermore, he anticipates that God will supply his needs. 
He'll supply the needs for them as they journey by, by giving rains that, that were collecting pools of water along the path so that as they make the journey, they can arrive successfully. When I read this stanza, it makes me think of our high school basketball team when it made it to the state tournament back when I was in junior high. I remember riding on the fan bus for three and a half hours to the game for the state tournament. It was winter. It was North Dakota. Put those two things together. That means it was cold. It was cold outside. And the fan bus that was taking us there was just a regular old school bus. That, that means the heater was mediocre. The insulation was non-existent. Yet there was so much anticipation about the coming tournament that, that none of that mattered. There was a fun, exciting trip. A joy-filled journey. That's how our psalmist thinks about making the trip to Jerusalem for the purpose of worship. It doesn't matter that it's a difficult journey. It's exciting because he's going to worship. He's not concerned with the difficulties. He's anticipating arriving at the temple. Verse 8 records the prayer that will break from his lips as, as he enters the temple court. Look, look at the name for God that flows through his mind as he anticipates arrival. O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. He's addressing the covenant God of Israel. The God who personally aligned himself with the nation. The God who guaranteed that he would bless the nation. The God who manifests himself at the sanctuary. God of hosts. Literally, that means God of armies. It's an expression of God's might. The, the God before whom nations fall, that is the God he's coming to worship. God of Jacob. A personal God. A God who knows individuals. A, a God who chose one family from all the other families of the earth. A God that he can call his God. Combined, the, these names show us that, that the psalmist realized he's coming before the all-powerful God. He's worshiping the, the God who can do all things, the, the sovereign God, the, the glorious God, the loving God. And because this is the God that he will worship, the hazards of the journey are meaningless. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how strenuous Nothing compares to the joyful sacrifices that will result in worship. He is glad to make any sacrifice in order to get where he needs to be. He is committed to worship. The attitude of our psalmist begs a question, doesn't it? What are we willing to sacrifice to gather for worship? Sure, we worship more than three times a year, so each time is not quite as momentous in the sense of we do it more frequently. At the same time, none of us have to take a week or more off work so that we can gather for worship. None of us have to walk for days to gather for worship. We don't have to trust that God will provide water for us along the way. Any sacrifices that we make pale in comparison to the sacrifices of our psalmist. Still, when we come together, we are worshiping the same God. Oh Lord, 
Yahweh, God of hosts, God of Jacob. That is the God we worship. And if we're going to list names for our God, we can add a few more to it. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, our Father. How committed are we to worshiping our God? What are we willing to sacrifice? Let's get real. We know each other pretty well, most of us, don't we? we, we most of us have been together for quite some time now. So we know how little it takes for some of us to skip worship. All that is needed for some is offer a better entertainment. For some it's the chance to participate in sports. For others it's simply the joy of lounging on our couches rather than climbing into our environmentally controlled vehicles and driving a few minutes when it comes to sacrificial commitment to worship, many of us have a real problem. Now, we might diagnose the problem as laziness, but I don't believe that's really the core issue. I don't think any of us are that lazy. Rather, I think the core issue is that we fail to comprehend the magnitude of our reconciliation. We fail to grasp that we can approach a holy God, the all-powerful God, the creator God, as Father. Where we truly grasp this astounding truth, if we really grasp what Christ has done for us, nothing could keep us from gathering for worship. Our anticipation would overcome any laziness that we might have. Our sacrificial commitments to all sorts of other interests demonstrate that none of us are so lazy that we can't do what we really want to do. We are reconciled sinners who have the opportunity of worshiping God. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. A reconciled sinner sacrificially commits to worship. That's the idea of the second stanza of Psalm 84. Thirdly, as we move into the third stanza, we, we find a third characteristic of worship. A reconciled sinner sincerely rejoices in worship. Sincerely rejoices. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. I trust you're able to sense the joy that the psalmist has here as he worships at the sanctuary. God is the protector of the nation. God has given them a king who serves as a immediate shield to the people. God has given them countless blessings, rewarding those who, who are upright, those who, who live in an upright fashion, conduct themselves in a way that the God has told them to do. God shows his faithfulness to those who trust him. He, he gives both grace and glory to his people. 
Now we could spend time looking at all the details here in the verses, but all of them combine to reflect that the psalmist has great joy. He's, he's rejoicing in the privilege he has of worshiping God. One detail I will mention, because the, the well-known King James Version translates verse 4 differently than the New American Standard, if the King James translates verse 10 as, rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. That, that translation creates the image that it's preferable to have lowly service in God's house than, than positions of, of high esteem in, among the wicked. That's not the point the psalmist is making. That the Hebrew word that the King James translates as doorkeeper merely indicates standing at the threshold. You can see why it would be translated doorkeeper. A doorkeeper stands at the threshold. But it simply means standing at the threshold, if not talking about an actual position in the temple. The, the idea that the psalmist is conveying here is he would rather stand on the very fringe of, of the worshipers in the temple area and, and participate even if he's on the very edge than to have the most secure place possible among the wicked. The joy he's expressing is the joy of worship rather than service. Of course, worship is possible be, because of a fundamental trust in God. A, a per, person cannot worship God if he does not trust in God. Worship is an expression of trust. And trust, psalmist says, is rewarded by God. Trust in God is rewarded by further blessings from God. So a privilege of worshiping God it is a blessing that God gives those who trust him. Those who, who express their trust in worship then receive further blessings that, that lead to increased joy as God is blessed in worship with such blessings. Do you follow the idea here? It's like this feedback loop. You know what a feedback loop is. You know, sometimes a speaker happens to be behind a microphone and, and as the speaker projects, the microphone picks it up and, and amplifies it. So the speaker projects louder and amplifies it more and pretty soon you get what? A loud squeal, right? Well, that's the idea here really of worship. As, as we worship God, God blesses us because our worship is an expression of trust. And as we worship him, expressing our praise and trust in God, God blesses us with reasons to trust him more fully. And as we re respond to those blessings with greater praise, it keeps coming more and more. So all that happens is our joy in worship continually grows. The psalmist began this entire psalm with a, Expression of joy in God. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And he closes with, O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. He began with expression of love for God and he ends with a praise for God's blessing that continually builds that love. He began addressing, O Lord of hosts, and he ends addressing, O Lord of hosts. The, the point is, for the reconciled sinner, worship becomes a self-fueling activity. Joy leading to joy. Worship empowering worship. Is that how you would describe your worship, reconciled sinner? Are you so filled with joy as you worship that you're energized for more worship? Did the joy of worship last week carry you to your worship this week? 
Has your joy today fueled you for the coming week? Has your worship this morning reminded you of how blessed you are? Has increased your anticipation for God's continued blessing by building your trust in Him? You are gathered as a reconciled sinner. God's intent is that worship would find us sincerely rejoicing in what we received from Him. God's intent is that we would sincerely rejoice in our privilege to worship him because we are reconciled to him by Christ. From, from time to time, I, I see a, a saying pop up on social media. The, the statement is made, I didn't really enjoy the style of worship in the service today. And the response is then given, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Sadly, I fear there's more truth in that statement, though, than we would like to admit. It is possible that the reason we do not sincerely rejoice in our worship is because we are somewhat worshiping ourselves alongside our worship of God. At least we're attempting to do that. We want to get something out of our worship instead of just praising the God who has already given us everything. The thing is, God will not allow us to split his worship with anyone. Not even with ourselves. So God will not bless us with joy if we were trying to split our worship. God will bless us with great joy when we worship him alone. When we worship him as the reconciled sinners that we are. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. A reconciled sinner sincerely rejoices in worship. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This morning, we are called to glorify God and enjoy him by worshiping him. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. We are reconciled sinners. We are called to enjoy God by worshiping him with eagerness. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord God of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives glory or gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. A reconciled sinner spiritually hungers for worship. A reconciled sinner sacrificially commits to worship. A reconciled sinner sincerely rejoices in worship. A reconciled sinner is an eager worshiper. Father, what a joy and privilege it is to gather this morning and to worship you, our God, as reconciled sinners. Father, I pray today that you would increase our eagerness as you increase our understanding of what you have done for us, what we've received from you, the privilege that we have to come into your presence and to sing and pray and to praise you. Father, we can do this because of what we've received from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Forgive us for not always appreciating it as we ought. Father, encourage us today. Fill us. Fill us with joy. Fill us with eagerness. Fill us with a continual yearning to praise our God, a yearning that carries us into all eternity as we worship you. We pray this in the glorious name of the one who is our reconciler, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.